You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We had planned to hear from Maui Mayor Mike Victorino today, but he went home sick yesterday afternoon, and last night his office reported back that he had tested positive for COVID-19. Maui has had the highest positivity rate in the state, and health officials have been concerned about its numbers because of the limited bed space on the island. The Valley Isle has reported more than 7,000 cases in the past two weeks, with a seven-day average of 490 cases. On Monday, the county added a booster shot requirement to get access to indoor events. We talked with Managing Director Sandy Boz about how it's dealing with this latest surge of the Omicron variant among residents and visitors. Definitely the Omicron variant has really spread wild uh, on Maui. Most people know at least one person that has gotten COVID in the last even few weeks or a couple months uh, for sure. And with the vaccinations and people getting boosted, what we're seeing is that uh, even though there's uh, such high numbers, the hospitalizations have increased, but not as substantially as they had with the Delta variant or um, in 2020 when we had the, the original cases. So what we're looking at is that the high peak was a little over 40 cases in the hospital at, at one time, and it has reduced since then. And we are able to maintain. The hospital, of course, is right on the edge of uh, whether or not they can handle not just the COVID cases, but, you know, all the rest of uh, our normal cases that are in the hospital as well and need for people to get acute care. So, you know, it's definitely a balancing act. We're very thankful that we got support from FEMA nurses and other healthcare workers to come in and assist um, with our healthcare workers at the hospital in dealing with this spike, but it has definitely had a major impact on our community. Whether they've been hospitalized or not, it's wanting to make sure that we don't increase so much that we have unintended consequences. Uh, FEMA did commit to 955 state contracted nurses deployed throughout Hawaii. So I, I don't know exactly how much we got on Maui, but I know from workers that are at the hospital, they've told me that they're already there and already assisting greatly with, with the effort. The hospitals were uh, having an issue with patients, you know, not being able to be discharged to like long-term care, skilled nurse facilities, just because of the staff shortages there. So are you seeing that there on Maui as well? Yes, we have that same problem. Uh, I mean, it's not just COVID. It's been going on for quite a while uh, with the lack of long-term care facility. In recent years, uh, Hale Makua has been able to keep up with the demand, but uh, definitely it's been an issue lately, uh, it, more compressed because of the COVID issues with our staffing there as well. But it makes it so that our uh, patients who could be discharged aren't able to. There's that issue, and then there's an issue of people being discharged who may not have a home to go back to. And so, you know, they don't, they're not really at the uh, ability to take care of themselves um, in their former living situation. So they're taking up hospital beds as well. And what are you hearing from uh, the other islands, from Molokai and Lanai? Similar, uh, you know, the increase in numbers, uh, definitely in new cases that has uh, in, been impactful, uh, people uh, getting sick, but not, not quite as a higher percentage as uh, previously. With Molokai, you know, they have Queens is their manager of their hospital, so they end up uh, sending people to Oahu uh, as needed to support their uh, 
need for additional services from uh, from acute care. But for uh, for Molokai, you know, it's been it's been in general, and and I gotta say that uh, the vaccine, even though it may not prevent you from getting COVID, it does prevent you from getting very sick, and that's really what the goal of uh, getting vaccinated is: is to prevent you from uh, getting serious illness and and possibly passing away from the virus. And this week, you know, Maui just instituted the booster shot for mm-hmm. your uh, safe access program. Uh, correct. Yeah, our safer outdoors program. You know, basically, we've been promoting for quite a while now that it's much safer to be outdoors than indoors. And uh, so to dine outdoors in a restaurant, you don't need to have any kind of vaccination requirement or testing. Uh, But to dine indoors, uh, we are requiring that you be vaccinated. And uh, now, as of January 24th, that you have up-to-date vaccinations. uh, The CDC has defined up-to-date vaccinations as those that have uh, either Pfizer or Moderna, uh, five months after they've had their second dose, uh, they've been eligible for a booster, so getting your booster shot. Or for Johnson Johnson, it would be two months after your um, your shot of Johnson & Johnson that you need a booster shot. What they're seeing is that the effectiveness of the immunization you know, from the vaccine is much more effective after you get a booster. Um, it jumps from about 30 or so percent up to about 75 or 80 percent, you know, once you get boosted. So it really does help uh, people not just from not getting the virus at all, but also from not getting too sick. Any pushback on that? You know, of course, there's concern from people who, you know, didn't support uh, getting vaccinated to begin with. Uh, And we really didn't change the program at all. Uh, It's still the same program where we require testing, and if uh, you don't want to test, then you have to show your vaccination card. Uh, And again, this is for indoors, uh, at uh, restaurants, bars, and gyms. Uh, Also, the governor has implemented a statewide policy on government workers to require them to be uh, vaccinated or test. And so we have the same uh, with our county employees as well. you know, they're required to get tested. If they don't want to get tested and they want to be exempt from that, then they provide their um, vaccination. And if they're eligible for it, their booster. Uh, one uh, area that I did want to make sure that people are aware of is that uh, if you only got your vaccination, say, maybe three months ago, then you're not eligible for a booster yet. So you're not subject to having uh, getting required to have a booster. Okay. And then, you know, uh, here on Oahu, we are hearing that uh, there are some travelers that are getting ready to board a plane to go back to their countries, you know, whether it's Canada or Japan, they end up testing positive. And so they have to, you know, quarantine for another 10 days before they can go back home. How is the county over there addressing that? So that is a slight problem throughout, you know, anytime you test positive, you can't travel. So uh, if they're testing pre-travel to leave again to Canada, Japan, and other countries that require it, they uh, are subject to a quarantine requirement. Uh, We've been working with hotels. Uh, Most of the hotels are able to accommodate the guests for a longer period of time. If they do test positive, you know, it's, it's up to the guest to make sure that, you know, they're paying for it and things like that. But uh, we have been able to work with the, the accommodations to keep them there. Any other challenges that uh, the county is seeing just in, in light of this surge? I mean, everybody's keeping their fingers crossed that, you know, we might have peaked and, and the numbers are on the way down. 
We really hope so. Uh, you know, the numbers uh, look like they're coming down a little bit. We don't know if it was the low from the weekend or um, if it really has peaked. But really, you know, we just ask people to continue that same vigilance that they have been with washing their hands and watching uh, their physical distancing and wearing masks. You know, those key factors are really what stop uh, COVID from, from spreading and pretty much, you know, most diseases. So, uh, you know, if you can continue to do that, we're seeing that we're able to maintain you know, our, our current function. We're really trying hard not to impact our business community, not to impact our resident quality of life while maintaining a, a level of public safety that keeps the hospital in in an area that is, uh, again, the ability for them to serve those that need that hospital service, acute care. Challenges are always every day, different issues, but uh, if we can maintain those things, then, then we'll make it through this variant and hopefully through the pandemic. You know, the county has worked with uh, the state and other providers to increase the amount of testing available. So if you have a concern and you would like to get tested, uh, there's testing appointments uh, available. You can go to the county's website, which is mauinuistrong.info, and get information about what test sites are available. You can make an appointment. Um, if you want to get vaccinated, we have lots of vaccination clinics and access. You pretty much walk in uh, most places listed there and get your vaccination or your booster right away. And just something that you know, we really want to continue to encourage. If you are sick, stay at home. Just be safe in every place that you go. And that's really what we're trying to focus on. And are you seeing, uh, you know, a lot of uh, absences with county workers there? Yeah, definitely uh, more so than any else, uh, any other time during the pandemic. We have uh, people out from uh, quarantine requirements as well as from isolation because they, they tested positive. Uh, you know, with kids going back to school, uh, you know, the kids test positive and then the parents have to quarantine at home with them. So what we've done to accommodate for that is to allow for county workers who can telework uh, to be able to work from home. And so our IT department has uh, increased the capabilities of uh, people to, you know, be able to log into their system from, from home. Uh, they can get work done uh, and uh, at least try to maintain the services and maintain the operations for the county. We've also waived fees for online payments so that there's no there's no convenience charge. So to get people to make payments online instead of coming in to have to pay their bills, which is you know, a good benefit as well. It creates less uh, public interaction and still able to maintain services. Well, uh, we understand that the DOE will be getting test kits from the federal government, and mm -hmm. I think they're working on a plan to kind of roll those out to the schools across the state. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll get your share soon. Yeah, we've actually purchased uh, our own self-test kit. Uh, actually just purchased about 22,000 of them that came in yesterday. And so we've been distributing them at drive throughs uh, throughout the county as well uh, on all three islands. So if people are interested in getting uh, self-test kits, in fact, we have one um, at the War Memorial parking lot in Wailuku uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. And uh, we'll uh, allow two test kits per person and six uh, kits per vehicle. 
so people can come drive through and uh, pick up their own test kit and then test at home when they need to. That was Maui County's Managing Director, Sandy Boz, with the latest on the COVID counts. And a reminder again, you can pick up those test kits this afternoon. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. It's time for your backyard quiz. This morning, we're trekking through the Valley Isles upcountry district of Kula to explore the rustic region that stretches across the western slopes of Haleakala. For farmers, the climate and the rich red soil are ideal for many crops, including lettuce, potatoes, and world-famous Maui onions. And for you lavender lovers, there's plenty of that, too. Farming of these crops in Kula began nearly 200 years ago in the early 1800s. Whaling ships resupplying after long voyages in the Pacific stocked up on provisions when they made port in Lahaina. In 1846, a record-setting total of 736 whaling ships docked in Hawaii, and a reported 20,000 barrels of potatoes were hauled down the slopes of Haleakala to fill them. Uh, although whaling uh, petered out as petroleum replaced whale oil, the gold rush in California kept demand for Hawaii-grown vegetables high. For this morning's quiz, can you tell us the nickname Kula was given because of its steady supply of produce kept that kept those gold miners fed? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. COVID-19 cases in North Kohala on Hawaii Island have been steadily rising over the past month, with nearly 200 cases reported in Kapa'au and Havi in the last two weeks. Local health officials are keeping a close eye on cases after the community was hit hard by the Delta surge last fall. HPR's Ku'uvehirishi joins us with more. Aloha. Aloha, Catherine. So the latest data from the State Department of Health shows the residential centers of Kapa'au. And for folks who may not be familiar with the geography in Kohala. This is the home of the original Kamehameha statue, but Kapa'au was showing 155 cases over the last two weeks, and Havi, a few miles 
closer to Kona from Kohala with more than 50 cases. The State Department of Education is also reporting nearly 30 cases among public school students and staff at all schools, so Kohala Elementary, Middle, and High Schools. Gino Amar, the administrator at the Kohala Hospital, attributed the recent rise in cases to a number of factors, some unique to this tight-knit Kohala community. So we already knew that the spread was going to be, you know, bad, you know, just because of the, the variant, the Omicron variant. We also know that there's multi-generational homes here, yes. And not only that, you know, we, we had some super spreader events, We, you know, gatherings, weddings. Amar says these, these super spreader events were a challenge during the Delta surge that you mentioned last fall. So around September and October, the communities in North Kohala, Sohavi and Kapa'au, those zip codes at one point, actually topped the statewide list for new cases per thousand people. And that was uh, surprising for folks there. But as Amar says, sort of in retrospect, it is these gatherings of folks right now in Hawaii County. The mayor has a limit of 10 people in terms of indoor gatherings on Hawaii County, but that expires at the end of the month, and we haven't seen yet what Mayor Roth is going to do. Amar has some advice for the folks out there in Kohala. Again, you know, it's those events, the super spreader events, not following guidelines like mask wearing or keeping social distance for, for everybody that's out there. Things haven't changed. Mask up, get vaccinated, get your booster, keep your social distance, and be safe. This is not the first variant. Um, I believe that more variants are on the way. So I wanted to go back to those case numbers that we heard earlier. So around 195 cases in the last two weeks. Uh, That may not seem a lot compared to perhaps other communities on Hawaii County and across the state. But when you consider the Kohala Hospital only has 28 beds, a majority of of them set aside for long-term care residents. I believe 20 or 22 are long-term residents and the remaining six are there for critical care. An outbreak of COVID could severely strain the hospital. Amar says the hospital has not yet admitted a COVID patient. Uh, Most have come in with mild symptoms, if any, and are able to isolate at home. But vaccination rates, you know, for folks paying attention to those numbers in Kapa'o and Javi are both above 70%. Amar also says that I believe two, all but two of his 75 employees are fully vaccinated. But due to the recent rise in in cases in Kohala, the hospital is soon going to implement mandatory weekly COVID-19 testing for all of its employees and a recent COVID-19 testing round of its long-term residents showed up with no positive cases. So some bit of good news amidst this rise. Well, you know, I know that the Big Island, the vaccination rates were pretty good compared to some other counties. But, you know, this thing is just spreading so quickly. And we were doing so well with our vaccinations. And I think we just all let our guard down, you know, particularly around the holidays. And then, you know, we've got a Chinese New Year coming up. Right, and an increase in uh, possibility of those gatherings. That's something that Amar and his staff have been sort of using in their messaging in terms of keeping that social distance, going virtual. 
But, you know, even with those high vaccination rates that you mentioned, we know that Omicron is is something that showed up even amongst the vaccinated population. And so that extra the booster and also the masking and preventing of big social gatherings is something that uh, we will be hearing more of from folks there in Kohala as they try to keep COVID at a distance. And, you know, I know that uh, we got a number of those traveling nurses in last weekend. I think we're slated to get another 100 this weekend. Do you know if any of those nurses uh, were sent up to Kohala? So I did ask Amar that question. They are not, Kohala Hospital did not receive any help and doesn't at this point need to receive any help. They were able to recruit retired nurses or, or mainland nurses who had come and moved to Kohala during the COVID-19 pandemic, three, I believe, that are actually now on board. So they were able to find the help in their community as of this point. But as I mentioned, if the cases continue to go up and they need more help, it's possible that they might dip into that FEMA-funded increase of of help. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that update, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking to HPR's Kuvehi Reishi. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a selection of gifts, publications, and handcrafted goods at the Homa Shop. Proceeds benefit museum programs and exhibitions. Also online at shop.honolulumuseum.org. An investigation into the disappearance of 43 Mexican students exposes a massive government cover-up, and officials lash out. Mexico is an important country, and you need to treat us with respect. Investigators no longer feel safe. I think you need to leave, like, for a long time. Part two of After Ayotzinapa on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Bite Marks Cafe. latest COVID-19 variant has put a damper on yet another festival that some worried would turn into a super spreader event. The Punahou Carnival will not be open to the general public next month as the school is just coming off a high absentee rate due to the Omicron variant and just general issues. We talked to Punahou President Mike Latham early on in this pandemic about the school's plans to resume in-person learning following the shutdown. We talked with him yesterday afternoon about how it's been able to weather this latest surge as everyone is hoping that we are on the other side of the peak. So we've done really well. We're in a, I think we're in a quite strong position. Uh, we've actually been on campus with in-person learning and all of our uh, extracurricular activities in athletics, performing arts, and uh, really the full range of things that we do that, that add into student life. Um, 
really since about October of 2020. So we've been running continuously for about a year and a half uh, in that in that setting. And so far, I think we've done we've done pretty well. How is uh, the Omicron variant affecting your plan? Certainly, it's it's much more highly contagious, and certainly we've seen a greater number of uh, of cases than we did before. And I think that's reflective of the broader trends uh, across across our community. Uh, but we've been really fortunate in that uh, the numbers themselves have remained low enough that we've been able to notify uh, anyone who may have been potentially exposed. And uh, the numbers of actual positive cases on campus have remained comparatively low, especially given our very large size as we have almost 3,800 students. So that's been really helpful. So while we have had some members test positive within the school community, it's been a case that we've been able to manage. And really, we've had great compliance and cooperation from families. Kids stay home when they're sick. That's made a big difference. We don't see any clusters or multiple cases emerging in classrooms. I and mean, what we're really seeing more are isolated cases, largely from home exposures or things that are happening outside of the school world. And is your staff, you know, working longer hours to help with the contact tracing, that kind of thing? Yeah, we really have had to certainly build up the resources in our in our health center. We've had to reallocate some staff, so people working in in various areas across campus, maybe in IT or in communications or in advancement, some of their staff have been temporarily reallocated to our health center so that we can keep up with the flow of reporting and contact tracing and and really providing accurate information, timely information, uh, because the communication side of that is just absolutely crucial. Families need to know not only what the conditions at the school are like, but of course we feel responsible to notify all of our families in the event of a potential exposure and provide them with guidance so that they know exactly what they have to do. And, you know, I did hear some complaints from parents who are saying, oh, gosh, yeah, we got notified, but it was, you know, past the five-day uh, period sure. that it's just taking longer to notify students. Yeah, it, it does. And I think some of that's really reflective of the volume. And, and again, out of an abundance of caution, we notify anybody who has been in a class with someone who is subsequently tested positive. And so you might imagine, for example, a class of 30 students. Um, and maybe a student has maybe several of those over the course of a day, and a single student may be on the other side of the room amid that class of 30 students. Now, by the CDC definition, a close contact is someone within about three feet for at least 15 minutes in an indoor space. But we're going to notify all 30 of those kids, even if they are potentially nowhere near that student, because we feel that we're doing so out of an abundance of caution. And frankly, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly where a kid sits in each classroom over the course of a day. And that means that the volume of notification and traffic simply increases. And so I think in the beginning, the numbers were very high, and we did scramble a bit to try to ensure the most timely notification that we could. I think we've got a much better approach now uh, as uh, really all of our markers and numbers have been on the downward slope, which is also really encouraging. The frequency and, and numbers of, of cases have actually been falling for us quite significantly. So we're, we're in a better position now. Can you share any of those numbers? I mean, I don't know what like the absentee rate has been like. With this Omicron. Yeah, so our, our aggregate absentee rate peaked around January 7th, and we had on the order of 10% of our students out. Now, of course, that includes students who are out for non-COVID-related absences. 
could have been a student was sick with some other for some other reason. Maybe the family was traveling. Maybe there was some other factor uh, that emerged. Uh, but that was certainly higher than we normally see. But those numbers have now trailed back, uh, so that we're certainly within the junior school grades K through eight, we're seeing absence rates, which look about normal for uh, for sort of typical operations of the school. In the academy, they're still a little bit high, but they're also trending downward as well. Um, and looking back over the past 10 days or so, really we've had almost no cases in which we had to send an exposure in kindergarten and first grade, very few in two through five, in grades two through five. Uh, pretty small numbers in the middle school as well. And then in the high school, we've had, you know, varied between two, five, occasionally six uh, notices that we've had to send out due to an infected individual on campus. But again, we've seen almost no evidence uh, or very little evidence that we can see of, of transmission. So that's, that's good. That means that the things we're doing to try to manage and control the virus are actually working. And a lot of those basics in terms of masking indoors and out, hand hygiene, and effective communication and staying home when you're sick, that works. And we're fortunate that our vaccination rates are very high. Um, so we've really, really pushed uh, and encouraged families to vaccinate. And so, you know, within the uh, employee population at Punahou, uh we have over, seven, over 97% of our employees are now, now vaccinated. And our student population numbers uh, are similar. Uh, in the high school, I'd say it's about floats, depends on a little bit on the grade, but between 95 and 98% vaccinated. Even in the lower grades, we still have vaccination rates that are uh, typically well above 80%, oftentimes heading up toward 90%, uh, even for grades K through six. So, so that's all really encouraging. And kids are getting boosted. We recently had the HPH vaccine, a vaccination bus on campus on the order of 250 more people got shots in the arm. And that's, that's all good. You know, I think that's, that reflects the fact that uh, the messaging is working and we're really trying to stand on the science. And was that for boosters? Uh, it was for boosters as well as for some of the younger kids' first-time vaccination. I imagine when you've got so many classes, elective classes, and you're moving, yeah. and, and you're involved in so many activities, I mean, yeah. is it likely that you could get, you know, a letter from, you know, English literature and then a band in the afternoon that you might have had an exposure there? Yeah, and typically what we would do is we would consolidate those. So if if a student is potentially in different settings, we're trying to ensure that they're receiving a single message that says, on this day, we believe that you may have been in a class where you were exposed and therefore, we're now encouraging you to follow our provisions for exposure and, and being very clear about what those provisions are. You have got a big event coming up, the Punahou we Carnival. Yes, that's right. <laughs> what is the plan? So we are running a, a much more scaled-down carnival than we normally would. Of course, last year, at the height of the pandemic, before vaccine use was, was widespread, we had to run one that was really very scaled down and built almost entirely upon sort of drive-through and take-out of, of, of food and, and, and other carnival items. Uh, this time we will have an in-person component, which we feel good about. Everybody in attendance will be masked and vaccinated or have tested within the past 48 hours. This year it will be a single-day event instead of two days, and it's also going to be limited to students, their immediate families, our employees, and then a small number of alumni volunteers. 
And we've consulted with the mayor's office. We've created a designating e- designated eating area, which will be outside. And ideally, we'll have family clusters and cohorts separated from each other there. That's, that's the approach that we intend to pursue. But we'd like to still deliver an in-person experience, but do so primarily as an extension of the school day and achieve the things that the carnival really has come to represent, people working shoulder to shoulder, enjoying the collaboration and the team spirit that promotes, creating an opportunity for student leadership as the carnival is really led by our junior class, and then finally raising money for financial aid. And that financial aid fundraising goes a long way to ensure that we can make a Punahou education available to families from regard, really regardless of what their income status may be. And it enables us to help preserve a need-blind admissions policy. And had the school been planning a you know complete in-person public welcome initially until this surge I think happened? that was our hope. Our hope was that we would return to an event where we would be able to welcome the entire community to our campus and where we would have E.K. Fernandez rides and the Midway and the other things that people come to associate with the, the Punahou Carnival. Uh, this year, unable, you know, we, we won't be having the rides and we won't be having some of those other pieces which we know people really enjoy. And, and if we had our way, we really would have an event that's open to the whole community because that's one of the things that we really enjoy and are, are really proud of our being able to contribute that. But at this point, at this time, in the interest of safety, we, we've had to go for a more scaled-down event with, with smaller numbers. Well, I'm sorry I won't be able to go to your uh, white elephant <laughs> sale this year. <laughs> you might find some bargains. Well, uh, well, I'm hoping, but I'm really hoping we'll be able to bring a lot of this back up. And, and some of our events will remain available. For example, our art gallery, which is really one of the premier art shows uh, in the state, will be running in an online format so that people can go ahead and access that view view those works you know we have uh, on the order of 3000 wonderful pieces of art ranging from from painting to jewelry to glass to ceramics uh, by over 300 hawaii artists and the proceeds are shared they're split between the artists and punahou's financial aid fundraising so we're hoping that people in the wider community can still enjoy and take part in, in things like that. Okay, just shop online. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, uh, That's you know, gosh, I know that the federal government, you know, is going to be providing test kits to schools. I think they're rolling mm-hmm. it out for uh, public schools first and then I think expanding it to private schools. And I know, uh, I believe there were some other schools that are doing the Sentinel testing. Uh, you folks mm-hmm. are doing that? So we will certainly be making available, and we've already advertised to our families, uh, announced to our families that they can order tests on their own through the uh, through the federal program. We will, I suspect, be pursuing testing uh, resources through the federal government as well. We have, at this point, testing is part of our return to campus protocols. It's certainly, we're following the CDC guidelines in that regard. And that's one of the things that we've consistently done. We have not done daily testing of our entire student population. And frankly, part of that is logistics. At 3,800 students, that's a really pretty complicated, complicated lift. The other issue is that with testing with the Omicron variant, um, uh, it is so contagious uh, that to really be effective, you really would have to test just about every day. In other words, Weekly testing for Omicron is of somewhat limited use. It can help raise confidence, can be a basic screening tool, but it's certainly not a silver bullet because, of course, it's possible that a student tests negative one day, goes off to 
some sort of practice or other event the following day becomes infected and becomes uh, symptomatic or potentially capable of conveying infection uh, within two days. And then, of course, if you were only testing once a week, you wouldn't catch that. So, so we've had to really think carefully about where we use testing and how, and we've really allocated a great deal of our resources into preventing people from, from coming to campus if they're sick and preventing transmission. Well, we certainly hope that we have peaked. We've seen some of our numbers go down in the last couple of days, and, and everybody is hoping that uh, it will drop as quickly as it rose. Yeah, that certainly is our hope as well. And we've really appreciated the the great cooperation that we've had from families and, and frankly, everybody's patience and the the tremendous work that our, our team and the health center have had to do, our, our nurses, the people who are specialists in this area, have have really just gone above and beyond the call and invested a great deal of time in responding to this wave. So so we're very grateful for that. We've been hearing from Mike Latham, president of Punahou School. Absenteeism among students and staff hit 10% this month. It's down now, but because of the Omicron variant, the Punahou Carnival has been scaled back. Support for HPR comes from First Hawaiian Bank with digital banking options including its mobile app and online and digital mortgage featuring a calculator that estimates closing costs. FHB.com slash digital home equal housing lender. This is Jason Taglianetti, host of Applause in a Small Room. In the past eight years, we've enjoyed great live performances from local and visiting artists in just about every genre. January 30th will be my last show here at HPR, and we'll listen to our most memorable performances, some you've heard and some you haven't. That's a special episode of Applause in the Small Room this Sunday at 4 p.m. here on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Merriman's Restaurants on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Details and reservations at merrymanshawaii.com. Governor David Ige says he's not ready to permanently close the military's Red Hill underground fuel storage tank farm. That is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Silver Beat reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. Nice to talk with you. Yeah, so you chatted with the, uh, the governor yesterday. Uh, you know, what did he say uh, about his uh, position on Red Hill exactly? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I, I think, you know, if we weren't uh, familiar with the risks at, at Red Hill before, we certainly are now. And there has been a chorus of political leaders who've been, been talking about the need in what they feel is the need to shut down the facility permanently, given everything that's happened. But the governor is still not ready to go there, it turns out. Um, you know, I, I think just by way of background, the, the facility leaking from that fuel, leaking from that facility into the water supply, sickened residents and military housing and forced the evacuations of thousands of families. And it's raised new questions about the safety of those tanks, which are about 80 years old. Um, 
the governor did issue an order on December 6th that required the military to suspend operations at Red Hill, um, but that's not a permanent order. Um, they also have to install a drinking water treatment system at the Red Hill shaft and to defuel those, those big tanks. Um, the order um, is required to also requires uh, that an independent party assess the operation systems and the system integrity and identify design and operational problems that could lead to more spills. And if there are problems, they need to come up with a plan to fix those problems. And not surprisingly, many state lawmakers and others want to do more. House Speaker Scott Psyche, for example, at the opening of the session of the legislature earlier this month, said that the Democrats, House Democrats, will move a bill that would require decommissioning of the facility. And this afternoon, the Senate is going to hear a bill to impose new restrictions on tanks, such as the ones at Red Hill, to try and ban them from, from operations within a half mile of the aquifer. All of this has left a lot of people wondering what the governor intends to do in the long term, since that, that order is, is sort of a short-term step. And, and I think a lot of people wanted to know whether he'll uh, require that the system be closed permanently. And, and again, he's not ready to say that. Yeah, I was looking at the online comments uh, following your story, and the, the majority of those are saying, you know, Governor, you need to step up uh, and, and, uh, and, and call for something, uh, you know, a little more draconian. Yeah, and, and what the governor is saying is he wants to see the results of that of that independent review of operations at, at, the, at the facility before making any demand that the Navy permanently decommission the tanks. And, you know, he acknowledges the huge, what he called, and I put that in quotes, the huge risk, which is why his administration ordered the Navy to empty the tanks. Um, and as he put it, we're not going to permit them to reuse it, meaning the facility, until the independent assessment tells us and the state agrees that the Navy can operate the tanks in a safe way that doesn't put our water at risk. But when we also followed up and asked him, so given the history, and this is, there is a long history of leaks from that facility, why not call for the decommissioning of the facility already? And he noted that the Department of Defense is a huge presence in Hawaii and, as he put it, a vibrant part of our economy. So there's definitely some an economic concerns at work here. Yeah, and you know we did see the congressional delegation um, ask him back in December, right, to to declare a uh, to ask President Biden to declare an, an emergency over this water issue. They did, and that doesn't seem to have happened. Obviously, I think we'd certainly have heard about it if the president had taken such a step. So perhaps that sort of passes things back to the delegation to to take whatever action they can. They're in some pretty powerful positions in the Congress. Um, but in the meantime, it appears that, you know, what the governor is, the position the governor is taking is going to put him at odds with at least half of the state legislature since the House Democrats intend to move a bill. And, you know, the governor also made the point that the federal government has delegated authority for regulating underground storage tanks, such as Red Hill, to the state. And in the end, but in the end, the federal government has the upper hand. I think there is a concern out there that if uh, the state were to come be too heavy-handed and to just simply order or try to order that the facility close, that the president, instead of declaring an emergency over the issue, might turn around and say that this is vital infrastructure and and require the state to require that it be kept open uh, under an, under some sort of an emergency order or an emergency proclamation. Well, you know, I think we are at a crossroads with this um, military installation, uh, you know, with all the land leases coming up. And, you know, I don't think we've ever seen so many lawmakers uh, line up on this position about the safety of the water. Uh, the city Honolulu City Council is taking up something today, you know, on this issue as well. Uh, so it's just interesting to see that the governor is just uh, kind of holding back.
Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. I mean, when, when you're down at the Capitol and you, you bring up the subject of Red Hill, people are adamant. And, and you know, politicians, you know, when, uh, when you get to a controversial issue, sometimes they can be kind of careful and, and cautious. But uh, feelings are really running hot on this particular issue. And it's difficult to imagine um, that the governor's position would be, um, how do I say, acceptable, I guess, to sort of the larger public because people are extremely concerned. There's no question about it. Yeah. Well, this is not a drill. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's reality check. To read the full story, visit civilbeat.org. I'm Ian Caps, host of The Early Muse. Every Saturday at 6 p.m. I explore the development and richness of Western music, both sacred and secular, from early medieval chant, song and dance, through Renaissance polyphony, to the first hundred years of the new Baroque opera, oratorio and orchestral music up to the year 1700. Join me on HPR2, your home for classical music, or stream The Early Muse on demand anytime on our website. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Today, we are pleased to share the pleasant voice of the palila, a native honeycreeper that can be found only on the Big Island. The University of Hawaii at Hilo professor, uh, uh, expert, who we uh, hear every Wednesday, Patrick Hart, he has your Manu Minute. Palila are the largest of the remaining Hawaiian honeycreepers being just a bit smaller than the red cardinals you might see in your backyard. Palila have yellow heads and breasts, gray backs, cream-colored bellies, and big, thick bills with a hook at the tip. They're part of a group of honeycreeper species known as the finchbills, which specialized on eating hard seeds from a variety of native plants, but are all gone from the main Hawaiian islands except for the palila. Fossil records show that they once ranged from Kauai to the Big Island, but now they only exist in a small patch of forest on the west side of Mauna Kea at elevations between about 7,000 to 10,000 feet. Palila are pretty much only found in forests that are dominated by mamane trees, and they're very specialized for extracting and eating the seeds from mamane pods, which look a bit like bean pods. These seeds have toxins in them that make them poisonous to most other animals, but palila have evolved resistance to these toxins. One of the grad students in our lab at UH Hilo is currently studying the vocalizations of the palila and has found they have an incredible variety of songs and calls. Here are just a few. Palila song is still thought of as a sign that it will soon rain. The pleasant voice of the palila has also been mentioned in Hawaiian songs, such as the 1882 mele. Heinoa pii mauna no kaleleo nolani, about Queen Emma's visit to Mauna Kea. Palila were listed as an endangered species in the late 1960s, and there are currently fewer than 1,500 individuals left. Because Palila live high above the zone where disease-carrying mosquitoes might be a threat, probably the best thing we can do to help them is support efforts to plant more mamane trees to expand their habitat and to ensure these areas are fenced to keep out feral sheep that will forage on mamani seedlings. 
This is actively being done by the Mauna Kea Forest Restoration Project, as well as other groups. However, as with other honeycreeper species, we're in a race against time to protect them before their numbers fall even further. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. This morning, we pulled a few pages from the Kula District's farming history for today's Backyard Quiz. While the region is perhaps best known for producing world-famous Maui onions, upcountry farmers also grow lettuce, tomatoes, carrots, cabbages, and surprisingly, potatoes. In fact, potatoes were once a major source of income for the region's farmers and for the state. Here's a story. During the 19th century, whale oil heated and lighted homes and ran machinery. Pacific whaling ships routinely made port in our islands to resupply. To accommodate sailors unaccustomed to taro or rice, Kula farmers began growing potatoes. And that uh, took well to rich volcanic soil. And although the whaling industry waned in the 1800s, demand for produce was kept high by the California gold rush in 1849. Kula farmers supplied miners with tons of potatoes, onions, corn, and other crops. It was this bounty that earned Kula the nickname New Kaleponi, the Hawaiian pronunciation of New California. And that was the answer to today's backyard quiz. Uh, thanks to Mark Sakamoto for today's quiz. You stumped our, our listeners. If you have an idea uh, for a quiz you'd like to share with us, Send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we have surveys on our mind. One for the city, one for the feds. Got a story you'd like to share? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR. Email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you want to listen back to something you heard? Find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of The Conversation.